All right. So I was at the Oakland Zoo this Monday, enjoying the view from the top of the hill where you take the gondola up, if you've done that. That's a beautiful view right from the top. I was chaperoning a field trip of first graders, laughing, playing, when I saw, first saw the news headline come across my phone. The cathedral at Notre Dame was in flames. Within hours, my social media timelines were filled with tributes to this monumental century old church. Maybe yours were the same. Folks from different faith traditions around the world were lamenting the damage done as the flames devoured the cathedral roof and the iconic spire collapsed. It was a poignant reminder in the beginning of Holy Week just how fragile the stuff of this life can be. Well, today's Easter Sunday what many Christians consider the most important day of the year as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But this celebration doesn't just come on its own, right? It comes at the end of a season, right? In the last six-plus weeks, Jesus' followers from traditions around the world have been observing Lent, a time to contemplate Jesus' earthly journey of ministry from his temptation in the wilderness to the highs and lows as he ministered and healed and preached, building up, of course, to the emotional last week of his life that the Gospels relate, a week that started with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the holy city, as the crowds there would welcome him as God's anointed, And then, of course, the week ends five days later at Good Friday as the mob mentality of those same crowds is stoked against him. And unjustly, he is unjustly convicted and crucified as an enemy of the state, a threat to the powers of empire that will not endure sedition and rivalry. That's Lent. Here in our Haven community, over the last six weeks or so, we've been considering this Lenten season through the particular lens of human vulnerability. Perhaps the most true thing we can say about what it means to be human, I've been saying, is that we are vulnerable. We have the capacity for wounding. We can become ill. As much as we try to resist it, the honest reality is we're all able to be hurt. We're all able to get sick like we've seen this week in Paris, all it takes is a spark to undo everything we've so carefully built and cultivated. Each of us is simply one accident, one act of violence, one medical diagnosis away from a different reality. So this Latin we've been asking, what does it mean that our faith proclaims that God chooses to reveal God's self most clearly through the person of Jesus. Jesus is understood to be God's revelation of who God is. And this Jesus seems not to try to escape this aspect of humanity, this vulnerability, but to actually embrace it, to embody it. In Jesus, the embodiment of human vulnerability is on display most clearly through the Good Friday account, right? Jesus standing with the humanity 
the vulnerability of humanity as one unjustly victimized, suffering torture and death at the hands of a scapegoating mob. Throughout Lent, here at Haven, we've considered stories of vulnerability from within our community as well as without. Stories of how living vulnerably can impact our daily lives and the lens through which we navigate the world, including our journeys of faith. We've heard stories about living with various disabilities, about experiencing stigmatization from others, about grieving illness and loss and our helplessness in the face of these things. And we've found solidarity in our stories with the Christ who also suffers. The divine one who reveals themselves not through might that is removed from our human pain, not through invulnerability, but through the embrace of frailty and weakness. In considering Jesus through the lens of vulnerability, we have found beauty in a God that suffers with us. But that might leave us feeling some disconnect with today's Easter story. Because what happens to the suffering of Jesus when he's raised from the dead? Right? Is his pain just like a setup to the glory? How do we, if we're still in pain, connect with a God who has been delivered from his own? What happens to vulnerability after the resurrection? There are some handouts amongst you. Uh, if, if the, for those of you who like that, to be able to kind of fill things in, those are available to you. There's pens in the back. This is the first fill in the blank. What happens to vulnerability after the resurrection? Scholar and theologian Dr. Christina Cleveland highlighted this very tension in, in a piece she wrote this week where she shared her story of growing up a preacher's daughter in a prosperity gospel mixed-minded church and finding as an eight-year-old girl that she had chicken pox on Easter. And dutifully, she attended church anyway, quarantined in the back row in her Easter best. But in her words, this was the experience. There was marching and dancing and trumpets and shouting and flags. Words like victory, conquer, and vanquish were prominently used to describe the finality of Christ's resurrection. Throughout the entire service, preachers turned drill commanders, exhorted us to energetically praise this God who had once and for all defeated death, sickness, and evil. But one question nagged my eight-year-old mind as I sat in my little quarantine at the back of the sanctuary. How am I sick if Christ has defeated sickness once and for all? There was a finality to the Easter celebration that left me wondering how to connect with a victorious God while feeling defeatedly sick. In other words, it seemed impossible to connect the festive finality of the Easter celebration with the anguish of Good Friday and the doubt of Holy Saturday. It was as if anguish, in this case chickenpox-fueled anguish, and doubt were figments of my anemic theological imagination. They weren't worth recognizing, and they certainly didn't have any place on Easter Sunday where it was all happy, clappy, rah-rah. The fact that I was at church, riddled with chickenpox, being told to stand up and shout and dance and proclaim God's victory over sickness was proof that the finality of the resurrection did not leave room for human need. 
perhaps some of us can relate to what Christina is saying. Perhaps you've been a bit ambivalent about celebrating this holiday at all. Perhaps you're in a place where your human need is more present than God's victory over vulnerability. Today, I want to look for a bit at a part of the Easter story that I think gives room for these tensions, and perhaps even hope for those of us who are fully aware today of our wounds and our weaknesses, that this resurrection story might actually be good news for us too. So why don't we look together? We're going to look at, at a story that's found in the Easter accounts in the Gospel of John, John 20. And this story happens after the women encounter the empty tomb. It happens after they testify to the men in their community that they found an empty tomb. It happens after John and Peter like race to see for themselves and wonder what it is they're looking at. It's after Mary Magdalene is weeping in the garden and encounters a gardener who turns out to be the risen Jesus. After all those things, this story picks up hours later, the evening of the first Easter Sunday. So let's read it together. It's on your sheet and on the screen. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they're retained. Now Thomas, called Didymus, also means the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand, put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas replied to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. So this is an interesting story. What I'm interested in right now is that we see movement from everyone Jesus encounters. Movement from fear to joy, movement from skepticism to trust. But what's at the heart of that movement? What catalyzes it? To say it's just the appearance of a resurrected Jesus isn't specific enough. It's not just the fact of Jesus' resurrection that changes things. Jesus here has two different encounters with folks. First, the group gathered on that first Easter night. And then with Thomas, who had missed the first encounter. And each of these, there's a turning point where, the, the, where we see the change from fear to joy, 
from unbelief to belief. And the turning point is the same thing. It's not the words of Jesus that brings change. It's not even his miraculous ability to like apparate into a room, right? Come through a locked door and just appear. What changes each encounter is the moment Jesus shows his friends the marks on his body, when he shows them his scars, when he shows them his scars. When Jesus meets the group on Easter evening, he finds them cowering in fear, huddling together in this locked room. Why? What were they so afraid of? Jesus alludes to Jewish authorities when he references their fear. Perhaps they're unsure of what to make of today's headline, that Jesus' body has gone missing. They themselves know they didn't move the body. That might lead them to wonder, well, who did? Could the same authorities who were threatened by Jesus and so conspired to have him killed, could they be hiding the body? Maybe trying to frame these, Jesus' followers, stir up more violent hostility now against them? That's a possibility. Or should they believe the words of Mary Magdalene, who claims that she actually encountered a Jesus in the garden who is somehow now alive? Perhaps, in addition to fearing the forces who brought about the death of Jesus, these followers fear what Jesus himself might say to them if her words are true. You know, Mary and the other women, they stayed till the end. They wept at the cross. They attended his broken body. It kind of makes sense why he would appear to them, why he would show up and speak tenderly to Mary Magdalene. But what about these closest disciples, these men who had scattered when Jesus was arrested, hiding, abandoning him in his moment of need just hours after he had predicted his own betrayal? If he really had returned, what words might Jesus have for them? Were they ready to hear them? Encountering them, Jesus seems to sense their fear which is likely why in this short passage we hear him say three times, peace be with you. But it isn't those words themselves that seem to bring the peace. It's the scars that speak to Jesus' followers in ways that transform things. It's only after he shows them his scars that the fearful disciples' demeanor changes and they are filled with joy. Now, in this space of joy, they can receive the peace that Jesus wants for them because they've seen his scars. Why? Thomas's interaction with the wounds is even more intimate. Having missed the very important dinner party, we get the sense that his friend's story is like too much for him to accept. Despite the bad rap that Thomas gets for being like a doubter, who among us can really blame him? What's interesting to me is that this is the same Thomas who showed keen awareness earlier in this same gospel that death was likely the trajectory for Jesus. And with him, Thomas and the other close friends. When Jesus is persuading them to accompany him to go back to Jerusalem because Lazarus has died, the story we looked at two weeks ago. 
Jesus had just recently narrowly escaped a stoning, and now he's saying, Lazarus is dead. we got to go back there. It's Thomas who says to the group, and we have this here, let us go too so that we may die with him. Thomas seems to be, to me, an analytical kind of guy. Not the kind who leads with his emotions, maybe like Peter, but one who analyzes evidence, uses logic and pragmatism to reason his way forward. He saw the forces at play. He knew that these forces were conspiring to bring Jesus down, and he knew death was a possible, probably likely, outcome as Jesus continued to challenge the entrenched authorities. And he was willing to face that death himself and rally his companions to the same. So the horrifying offense of Good Friday wouldn't have been a shock to Thomas, but likely they were a painful validation of his own instinct, as well perhaps as an exposing of his own weakness in the face of trial. Despite Thomas's intention to be a good ally, his bravado in the face of hypothetical oppression, when the moment came, he did not stand up and die with Jesus. He did not put his body on the line for the man he loved and followed. He disappeared, like all the rest. He hid and he had the privilege to do so, likely shrouded in the guilt that anticipating what was coming, the fact that he had seen it, hadn't actually given him the strength to face it with Jesus. So Thomas may have anticipated Good Friday. What he had no capacity to anticipate was Easter Sunday. He knew death was final, To expect him to believe otherwise would require real evidence. Unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds and put my hand into the side, I will never believe it. When Jesus encounters Thomas, he does not call him out for abandoning him, nor does he chastise his lack of faith. He speaks peace to Thomas, and then he invites him to an intimate exploration of his hands and his side. Reach out, Jesus says. Don't be shy. Put your fingers on my wounds. Don't just look with your eyes. Touch my scars. Take them in and believe. And in that moment, the analytical, skeptical, failed ally, Thomas, is drawn from self-protection to worship my Lord and my God, he proclaims, not because of Jesus' words, but because of his scars. Why? As a young photographer, Sophie Mayan was intrigued by the ways that society conditions us to think that certain aspects of our physicality are beautiful while others are flawed. Beauty is something that's always interested me, she said, and I like to find beauty which can be overlooked. One area where she noticed beauty overlooked most clearly is in how people regard the physical scars that they live with. Inspired by this idea, Sophie began what she intended to be a small photo project, taking portraits of people with their scars 
and allowing them to tell the story behind where the scar came from. Over the last couple of years, her project, Behind the Scars, has gone viral and become a global phenomenon. And people from around the globe have asked Sophie to take their picture so that they can be a part of this project and they can tell their story. Here's just a few of them. First is Maya. She says, I was diagnosed with epidermolysis bullosa, EB, when I was 18 months old. EB is a rare genetic condition which causes the skin to blister and tear at the slightest touch. Due to the sensitivity of my skin over the years, I have gained many scars. I've always been self-conscious and ashamed of it until very recently when I decided to embrace it and not let it hold me back from living life to the fullest. Jared says, my scar originates from an open heart surgery I had at 17 to correct a congenital heart condition that was leading me to heart failure. Being part of the zipper club has its benefits. I rather enjoy being alive. However, my scar healed like the surgeon lost control of the bone saw. And I'm left with a very distinct marking that is an unsubtle reminder of my experiences, good and bad. The reactions I typically receive when people see my scar have led it to become my biggest insecurity. It's a constant battle between hate and acceptance. Hate because I'm often looked at as disfigured and broken, as well as some physical discomfort that it causes, but acceptance because it's a significant part of my life story and gives a glimpse into the mental and physical struggle I have to live a normal life that most people will never have insight to. One more, and a, a warning. This one involves uh, the topic of self-harm. Adara says, I started self-harming when I was around 11 years old. It started off as a response to the overwhelming feelings I was experiencing. It quickly spiraled into an addiction, and I didn't know how to stop. The scars piled up on my arms and legs, and other people started to notice, and I felt ugly, grotesque, and ashamed. Strangers on the street would question me relentlessly about them. And when the weather got hot, I knew I needed to cover them up through fear of judgment. So for years, all I wore were long sleeves and jeans. At times, I felt guilty because the scars are self-inflicted. But I'm happy to say I am now fully recovered. Even though I will always have these permanent scars on my body, they serve as a reminder to the battles I have fought and won. I am proud to show the world that it's okay to have scars, no matter where they have come from. Every scar has a story. Every scar has a story. And every person who lives long enough to be wounded has a scar. Right? We all carry injury. Some of us wear our injuries on our skin. Others of us may have scars on our spirits that are hidden from view. But nevertheless, we carry the markers of our vulnerability everywhere we go. And yet, as these three and so many others have testified, there is a power released when we can move from living as scarred people defined by our wounds, afraid of what they reveal, to living as beautiful, healing people who happen to wear scarves. Scars. 
There's power when our wounds no longer define us, even as they remain part of our story. When they no longer define us, even as they remain part of our story. In college, I was a theater student, and I remember one day in a scene rehearsal with a scene partner when an invisible scar of mine showed itself in an uninvited way. My scene partner was a young man, and I were working on building our characters through improvisation. Okay, so the idea is you improvise some of the life experiences behind your character to try to like, get into touch with what it's like to be them. All right? So we were working on this, helping us embody these characters. And knowing my character's bio biography, he decided in this improvisation, it took a turn, and he decided to force himself on me, claiming he was doing me a favor, helping me to experience a taste of the sexual violence that was part of my character's story. What he didn't know until I forcefully pushed him away and ended the rehearsal immediately without explanation was I didn't need to improvise that experience to understand it. I'd been living with the wounds of sexual violence for years. Wounds from my childhood, compounded by wounds from young adulthood. And these wounds left marks that for years left me afraid of intimacy, ashamed of my impurity, filled with self-loathing. But these wounds were not the end of my story. Coming to faith in a real way in Jesus was, for me, the experience of finding the healing power of unconditional acceptance and love. In the person of Jesus, I connected with a divine love who fully embraced me without qualification or condemnation and who defended me when others threatened to throw stones in my direction. I encountered a God that did not stand idly by as I was violated but wept as I wept and committed to my restoration and healing. And through my journey of faith, I have experienced healing that has not erased these wounds from my past, but has transformed them into signs of strength and life after loss, into resurrection, into the scars that inform my story. Some have asked me in more recent years why I've chosen to stand publicly with the queer and trans community in starting this church, which, happy birthday. We've been doing it for three years, and we are still alive. Woohoo! <laughs> People ask this, why are you doing this? When you're not queer, that's the assumption. Well, if you're not queer, why would you risk so much? Because I have walked away from relationships with my church family in which I was nurtured in for decades. I have been rejected. I have had to be isolated with the exiles, with my queer brothers and sisters who are also exiled, with my trans brothers and sisters. So there are lots of ways I could answer that question, but I think one important one is to acknowledge my own scars and let them tell their story. Because I may not know what it's like to be queer and rejected by your family. 
I may not know what it's like to be trans and told you're not welcome in this church, but I do know what it's like to be wounded. And I know what it's like to live into the healing of Jesus's radically inclusive and affirming, self-giving love. And so whatever the cost, my scars compel me to testify to that healing inclusion and love and to co-create spaces where others' wounds can also be healed, where others' places of vulnerability can be redeemed. Amen. The reason I think Jesus' scars are so powerful, they bring the fearful ones to joy and the skeptics to worship, is because they reveal what I think we all long to know, that our vulnerability can be redeemed. That our vulnerability can be redeemed. Our wounding matters. Yes, its story matters. But it does not bear the final word. Death loses its sting. We all long to know that loss and frailty and illness are not the end. So they do not define us, but neither are they erased. The wounds we suffer do carry forward in some way into the life that is to come. Resurrection does not erase our suffering. It transforms it. Resurrection does not erase our suffering. It transforms it. It did not, it did not erase Jesus' wounds. It transformed them. It redeems our suffering. It incorporates our vulnerability into an invulnerable future. Jesus rises bearing scars. We worship a God who is scarred. Think about that. That's a picture. We worship a God with scars, forever marked by the wounds of the vulnerability of life and love. This divine heart is accessible to us in our own frailty, in our chicken pox and cancer and all. But it also points to something beyond those things beyond chickenpox, beyond cancer. Throughout the last week, we've heard stories about the cathedral at Notre Dame, stories that tell us it has been severely injured before, and it has been rebuilt. The famous novel, Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, was actually written in one of those fundraising efforts to restore the cathedral. If it hadn't been wounded, we wouldn't have that novel. And many people probably wouldn't even know as much about Notre Dame. It, it speaks to people's hearts because of that work of literature. And so money is poured in from people around the world to restore the cathedral again. At last toll, at least a billion dollars. But the attention to Notre Dame and its restoration has also provided an opportunity to talk about other sacred spaces that have been desecrated, specifically three historically black churches in Louisiana that were recently destroyed by a racist arsonist. After journalist Yashar Ali tweeted a challenge for folks to pivot 
and stop donating to Notre Dame and donate instead to these churches, around $2 million has come in, enough to restore them through GoFundMe. One of the pastors said these gifts will help resurrect these churches. All of them will be rebuilt, and these fires will now become part of their history because resurrection brings vulnerability redeemed. So there's one more beautiful thing that happens in this story that I want to draw your attention to as we end. In his first encounter with the followers gathered on Easter evening, after the disciples' fear has turned to joy, Jesus gives them an invitation. Peace be with you, he says. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In John's telling, the gift of the Holy Spirit comes here, directly through the breath of Jesus, echoing the image of the creator in Genesis, breathing the breath of life into the first humans. And this new creative act, this outpouring of divine breath into human vulnerability, gives these first Jesus followers the capacity to do what they have now just witnessed, to allow their own wounds to be transformed into scars that can speak. You see, each of these close followers of Jesus, they've also just experienced trauma. No, they didn't feel the nails in their hands, they didn't have their sides pierced, but they did just see their best friend and mentor publicly shamed, tortured, and executed. That's traumatic, right? They've seen the dreams they thought they were living into obliterated. Like Thomas, they probably feel the guilt of their own complicity, participating in a system that traumatized them by running away and saving themselves rather than confronting the powers that targeted their rabbi. And yet, in this moment, the resurrected God, bearing the scars of his wounding as well as the truth that death has not had the final word, this God is calling them into resurrection too. With the breath of the Spirit, they are invited to receive healing for their wounds, to allow their scars to become stories, and to be sent to share those stories, those signs of life and hope that vulnerability can and will be redeemed. So this is where I want us to end. As we end, I want to issue the same invitation to all of us. It might feel hard to imagine moving on our own, beyond our wounding. But Jesus didn't expect his followers to do it on their own. And I don't think he expects that of us either. I think that is why he breathes the Spirit into them. So I ask you to consider... Where are the places where you feel wounded today? What are your markers of vulnerability? Where are you longing to experience divine redemption? What might resurrection look like in your places of loss? I'm going to give us a moment to reflect on those questions. 
And then we're just going to take a moment to do this, which Jesus did, to invite the Spirit to empower that healing in us. Okay? So we'll just take a moment to reflect on where your places of wounding might be, what resonates. And now I'm just going to invite you with that in mind to receive God's blessing and spirit. If you're able to stand, I invite you to stand. If you prefer to sit, you may sit. But if you're able to stand, we're gonna, this is something different. But I think there's something powerful about just standing before God and saying, I want to receive that spirit to allow my wounds to be transformed. Spirit, we thank you for the ways that you have breathed the life of God, the life of divine redemption into Jesus, and that you invite each of us to receive that same life. So even now, we ask that your spirit would come and fill us in a fresh way with a sense of your presence, with your blessing, with hope that our wounds do not have the last word, that the places we have been broken, the places we have been violated, the places we have been touched by illness, injustice, oppression, do not get to win, do not define us. There is life after loss. Vulnerability can be redeemed. Would you give us fresh hope that you are doing that work in each of us and you are inviting us to share our story with a world that desperately needs hope for redemption. Amen. Amen.